0: Welcome to the Republican professor this morning for us we have with us uh, our esteemed guest Dr. John Lott thanks for joining us John
1: it's uh it's great to talk to you thanks for having me on yeah
0: John are you joining us from the east coast
1: no joining you from Missoula Montana oh Montana nice Beautiful.
0: beautiful up there That's awesome. What's the weather like up there today?
1: Uh, I don't know. Probably be about 70 will be the high. Uh, Nice blue skies. That's awesome. Nice.
0: John, uh, we brought you on because you're the author of this uh, Imprimus piece from last year called Is Ensuring Election Integrity Anti-Democratic? And it was published by Hillsdale College in Primus. It goes out to 6,100,000 readers monthly. This is from October 2021. What led you to write this piece and get involved with this?
1: Well, I'm president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. We do a lot of research on all sorts of aspects of crime. And one of the aspects of crime is vote fraud that we've looked at. Uh, we, in 2020, uh, when there were all sorts of changes going on in the election system here in the United States, we decided to go and, uh, and see how the rules compared to other countries. And so uh, we looked at the voting rules for all 47 uh, European countries, as well as all developed countries around the world, which includes a lot of European countries. Uh, on a range of different issues from uh, photo ID requirements to absentee ballot rules, to even things like chain of custody with regard to ballot boxes. Um, And the interesting thing to me was how much of an outlier uh, the United States is relative to the rest of the world uh, in terms of anti-fraud type rules. And the other thing that was quite striking when we were going through the history of some of these rules in different countries, a lot of the countries used to have rules more similar to what we have in the United States, but uh, they had run into problems regarding fraud and uh, had changed. And the interesting thing to me was how in these other countries, there was kind of agreement across the political spectrum about the need to have these types of changes and how that contrasted with, uh, with the view in the United States.
0: So it's your position that, uh, it's perfectly reasonable to have a voter ID for requirement for voting in elections.
1: Well, it's perfectly reasonable to have lots of different types of rules. If you know, you take the experience in these other countries, uh, as representative, look, if, concerns about vote fraud are delusional, then they're pretty much delusion shared by the rest of the world. Uh, You look at uh, Europe, for example, as I said, there are 47 countries in Europe. 46 and a half of them require government-issued photo IDs to be able to go and vote. The one outlier has been part of the United Kingdom. Uh, But now they have legislation and they're moving towards uh, joining the rest of the continent. So pretty soon you're going to have all 47 countries having uh, government-issued photo ID requirements. Some of them require your passport, for example, like the Czech Republic. Um, If you look at something like absentee ballots, uh, 35 of the 47 countries ban absentee ballots for people living in their country, completely ban them. Another 10 allow absentee ballots, but they will not send them to you in the mail because they're concerned about them being stolen. They require that you have to have a government-issued photo ID in order to pick it up because they want to make sure that the person who is obtaining the ballot is the person who's supposed to be voting it. Uh, And even six of those 10 countries limit it to people who are in the hospital or in the military at the time, and they don't take your word for it. They require that you have to uh, have third-party verification. So 45 of the 47 countries in Europe have much stricter absentee voting requirements, either banning it, most of them, or uh, in terms of requiring a government photo ID to pick it up uh, than any state in the United States has. Uh, Nobody's even talking about those types of rules. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you look at the debate, uh, they got everybody so upset in Georgia uh, this last year. and what got people upset? Georgia was requiring that uh, people put the last four digits of their Social Security number on, uh, on their absentee ballot. You know, the thing is, uh, everybody, every American uh, and many, even many non-Americans have a Social Security number. Uh, it's not like even a, a, a driver's license that you're requiring people to have. And there can be mistakes in terms of identifying people's signatures uh and so having the last four digits is a way of trying to reduce those types of mistakes that are there, but yet that was a bridge too far uh obviously uh, uh Biden was claiming that that was Jim Crow too that was occurring that you would require uh the last four digits of people's social security numbers and uh you know uh But you look at other rules, one of the big changes. Of course, it would
0: make it easier for fraud to occur if you happen to know those four digits.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, as I say, everybody, all Americans, every single American from birth has a Social Security number, Uh, and lots of illegals have Social Security numbers, and uh, lots of non-citizens have Social Security numbers. So it's not exactly a tough sieve there in terms of uh, identifying people to have just the last four digits of their social security. number, um, the,
0: the poll workers would uh, double check that? They'd have that information?
1: Right. They would, well, they would, when they received the absentee ballots, uh, they would have that information there uh, when they go and uh, check to see who the, the ballot is from before they open it. It'll be on the outside envelope. <laughs> Uh gotcha. And uh it won't be on the actual ballot itself. You're, but you uh,
0: yeah. Your piece in Primus has a lot of very interesting information in there, a lot of stuff I didn't know, especially the comparison mm-hmm. of the United States with other countries in, in Europe. Um you're famous, Dr. Lott, in circles like we run into, we run in the, the Second Amendment um circles. Uh, and uh, you're you're quite well known and famous for your book, for example, "More Guns, Less Crime." Mm-hmm. I see you have some other books there, "War on Guns." I've seen that on C-SPAN. Your presentation there—that's—I'm sure it's still available on YouTube. Um, when people make arguments for gun control, oftentimes you'll hear them compare us with other countries in Europe. Um, of course, you're doing the same thing here uh, with voter ID. Uh, what's the strategy there in terms of argument? The, the the seems like the left likes to use the the Europe as the shining example of the city on the hill for gun control, uh, but they don't with voter ID. What's what's going on there? Why why is that happening all of a sudden? Like you mentioned, it was used to be bipartisan you start up
1: well there's more there's more diversity across europe in terms of gun control type rules and there is diversity across europe in terms of uh voting type rules that are there uh you know the czech republic for example uh has part of their constitution uh, guaranteeing people's right to be able to keep and bear arms uh you have uh switzerland Obviously, uh, for a long time has uh, kind of had people have military weapons stored at home uh, that's there. Uh, Often when people are comparing the United States to Switzerland, for example, uh, uh, some gun control groups like the Small Arms Survey will go and compare privately owned guns between the two countries. But that's a little bit misleading because... uh, When people have been in the militia, um, the government technically owns the guns that they that they'll have from there, either the machine gun that they have or handguns. Are you talking Uh, about?
0: Are you talking about Switzerland for that example?
1: I think that's what I said, Switzerland. Okay. But the uh, did I say some other country?
0: No, no, you're right. I'm not sure. Yeah, sorry, Uh, I might might have missed it.
1: uh, Anyway, uh, so uh, but if you and so between 18 and 34 all able-bodied males are in the militia after age 34 you can apply to remain in the militia and most uh swiss men do uh and then they can keep doing that up until age 65 at age 65 they're given the option to be able to go and purchase the weapons that they had but between 18 and 65 uh you know those handguns that are given to them by the military or the machine guns that are given to them are all still technically owned by uh, the government. So the question is, do you care about what guns people possess or do you care about what guns people technically own? Seems to me there's a strong argument to be making there about gun possession rather than, you know, if you're worried about how people are going to behave. Uh, rather than gun ownership, per se. And, uh, you know, if you count it that way, Switzerland probably has a much higher gun possession rate uh, than the United States has. So, um, uh, but in, in any case...
0: What if the left writes off Switzerland? Because it, they are kind of an odd example.
1: Well, yeah, uh, as I you say, of the, yeah. the Czech Republic. Uh, also, Czech Republic has, it's not quite uh, the, what the United States mm-hmm. is like, but you have a few percent of the adult population has a concealed handgun permit, for example. Uh, that's less than the 10 percent in the United States, but it's still substantial. Um, but, you know, it's not just Europe. Uh, you look at the voting rules across the world. Developed countries have very similar rules. Um, you know, Canada and Mexico uh, have government-issued photo IDs to be able to vote. Uh,
0: I was really surprised to read that.
1: Uh, Mexico has also uh, thumbprints on the IDs that are there. Uh, Mexico bans absentee ballots for people living in the country. Mexico is an interesting example. I and mean, again, yeah. it's another case where there's really no political disagreement all three major political parties in Mexico, uh, the PAN, the PRI, and the Socialists, all support uh, government-issued IDs and a ban on absentee ballots for people living in the country. Um, You know, and it's kind of amazing how difficult it's been to vote in Mexico Uh, under the rules that they passed in 1992. uh, They will not send you any of the applications or you can't send it in through the mail, you have to go in person uh, in order to apply for the uh, government-issued voter ID. Uh, And then you have to go back a second time in order to go and pick it up. The thing is, in, in almost all the Mexican states, there's only one election office to go to. So that may mean you have to travel 75 miles or so each way in order to get your ID. You would think with all those obstacles, there should have been a huge drop off in the rate that people voted after 1992 compared to beforehand. But if you look at the three presidential elections prior to 1992, uh, there was a 59% turnout rate. In the three presidential elections after 1992, there was a 68% uh, voter turnout rate. Um, And, you know, it's pretty clear what happened when people Became convinced that there'd be less fraud, that their votes mattered more, people were more inclined to participate in the voting process. That's there, so I mean, you look around the world. Uh, there's only three developed countries outside the United States that do not require a government-issued photo ID to vote. Uh, they're New Zealand, Japan, and Australia. But both uh, New Zealand and Japan Uh, require that you have a unique either nine or 12 digit number that's given to you uh, before you go and vote. If you lose that, um, you know, accidentally bring a relative's number instead of yours or something like that, then they'll ask you for your government-issued photo ID at that point. Um, The only real outlier is Australia, where uh, they don't require a government-issued photo ID. Instead, they ask you a series of four questions like, have you voted in recent elections uh, as well as your address and your name, just to double check everything that's there. Wow. But, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, the United States is very unique. Even Australia, though, will require government issued IDs in order to get an absentee ballot. Um, so um, in any case, it's, uh, you
2: they
1: know, this last seriously. time where <laughs> they we take it
0: seriously, a- in other words.
1: Right. This last time when we had these mail-in ballots, I mean, that's a step even further than uh, the absentee ballots. And it was a real outlier. Poland tried uh, mail-in ballots for the 2020, their 2020 election. It was a bit of a disaster Um, and they aren't going back to it. But, you know, other countries uh, pretty much kept their old voting rules. I mean, Russia changed it for two cities in their country uh, during 2020. But uh, generally, uh, all the rest of the countries that had elections that year didn't change their rules. They had in-person voting, just like we had in parts of the United States.
2: Yeah, I I find Mexico a particularly interesting uh, case study, just because it's it's immigration is one of the arguments that is always put forth here why we need to be easier on immigrants we need to make it easier for people to vote you know and all that and wow there it's it's over they're going out of their way to make the effort if they know it's going to be legit yeah
0: well of course illegal immigrants are not allowed to vote here so we don't want to make it il- easier for them to vote right certainly certainly uh um... But you know the the case about France, for example, that you mentioned in 1975. I had no I had All right. Well, no France idea. used
1: to France used to have absentee ballot rules similar to what we have here in the United States up until 1975, when they discovered, uh, kind of by accident, well, by some people had guilty conscience, I guess, on the island of Corsica that there were literally many hundreds of thousands of. Uh, votes being cast by uh, people whose votes were being bought uh, or dead people. Uh, and it was at that time they moved to ban absentee ballots uh, in the country. Um, and one of the things uh, that I talk about in the piece that I don't think yeah. most Americans appreciate is kind of the history of voting in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, give yeah. me one example. Because, yeah. um, uh, you know, these issues of fraud in other countries is something that we've had experience with or vote by. Uh, take uh, secret ballots. Most people probably assume that we've always had secret ballots in the United States. And that's simply not the case. What used to happen is um, you'd have a ballot box up in the front of the room and people would walk up with different colored pieces of paper for the party that they were going to vote for and stick it in there. And you would have representatives for the two parties standing on either side of the ballot box. And they could see by looking at what colored paper you were putting in there, what, uh, who you were voting for. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, and the thing is, uh, they would pay them for doing it. Uh, When the first state to adopt secret ballots was Kentucky in 1882, the last state to adopt secret ballots was South Carolina in 1950. And uh, uh, when states moved to secret ballots, there was about an 8 to 12 percent drop in the rate that uh, people were voting. It was a very large drop that was occurring there right at the time when they made the switch. And it's simply when people weren't getting paid for voting anymore. Some people decided that they weren't gonna vote. When you have a secret ballot, uh, they couldn't pay them anymore because they weren't sure how they were voting. I mean, I could tell you, I could promise you that I voted for you, but you wouldn't be sure. Right, I, mean, I could right. go to both parties and claim yeah. that I voted for them. Uh, anyway, after uh, the move to secret ballots, uh, a lot of states uh, banned absentee ballots or to the extent that they had absentee ballots, they would ban things like vote harvesting. Uh, the problem that you have with absentee ballots is that you can show to somebody how you're voting. And with vote harvesting, uh, not only can they see how you're voting, but they can make sure that the ballot is actually cast, which is, you know, helps uh, or not. Be sure that they're getting what they're paying for, you know, just because you... Show them the ballot, and then you don't turn it in. it uh, Doesn't do them any good. So John, so,
0: John, are you saying that the the candidate would pay for their for own the votes, or okay, the party would? I was going to say, who's they? Who's who's the one paying? It's not the government, right? It's no, the, of course it's not. The private.
1: No, it's the same thing I was talking about with regard to uh, the secret balance before right. you moved there, right? You'd have the representatives of the parties there.
0: Parties would pay.
1: Parties or the how much? Candidate.
0: How much do you think they get would get paid for voting? Uh,
1: you know, it varied a lot. It wasn't huge amounts of money, but you know, it was, it was enough uh, to make it kind of depend upon the race and other things that were there. Wow,
0: that's amazing. I, I don't think a lot of people know that. At least a lot of people are. A lot of people. One of the America main reasons. Don't.
1: One of, the, one of the big reasons that, that we moved to secret ballots in the United States. Um, you know, they, when you had illiterate people, uh, and there were never a huge number of illiterate people in the United States. But when you have illiterate people, uh, having simple colored pieces of paper made it relatively easier for them to go and vote rather than having to go and read names, mm. uh, you know, that they would have to go and check off or something like that.
0: So getting rid of the color coded ballots, which was the basis for the payment and did make it easier for people to vote if they were not made it harder, able to
1: made it harder.
0: Oh, yeah. Made it harder.
1: Harder Got it. it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So getting banning, banning that would be harder on the um, poorer people, I guess, if they couldn't read.
1: Well, Or at least people that weren't literate.
0: But. Yeah, like you said, South Carolina was the last one to vote <laughs> to ban it, and uh, they weren't, at least in 1950, they weren't known for their uh, particular concern for uh,
1: black people. Right. Well, other southern states had moved uh sooner to secret ballots uh than than South Carolina was. South Carolina was uh an definitely an outlier, at least on that, in terms of the South. But South Carolina had other types of rules like poll taxes and stuff.
0: Is there a, a good resource that has all this stuff in one monograph or do you have a set of resources that we could we we could pass on? Uh we'll of course link crime prevention resource center research research, research center.
1: Right. Well, I mean, uh, I guess my book Freedomnomics goes through some of the voting rules that are there, and has some of this discussion in it.
0: Freedomnomics. Okay, we'll link that. Great book. Uh, Can we ask you, you, your, your PhD is in economics, right? From UCLA. That's right. How did you uh, get interested in the work you're doing? Was it in graduate school, or was it earlier?
1: Well uh there was a a small portion of my dissertation that dealt with crime type issues. Um but
0: uh you know did you study with Wilson was he there James Q Wilson when you were there?
1: Uh I he was there briefly at UCLA but I wasn't connected with him in any way when he was there in the business school. Um and uh I mean I guess I knew he was around there very briefly but uh we didn't really overlap that much. Gotcha. And uh, um, I, uh, uh, anyway, it, you know, but I was chief economist at the U.S. Sentencing Commission in the late 80, 1980s. Uh, you know, I was interested in crime issues just generally. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and I kind of got into the gun debate by accident, and that kind of got me a lot more into the crime issue. But I've written on a range of different topics from uh, industrial organization, pricing by firms, to education. My dissertation was mainly on the economics of education, Um, to labor type issues, to, I don't know. I mean, I probably, to voting type rules. uh, I've probably written probably on more different areas than just about anybody else
0: yeah it is it is striking how much you've written you uh are you the founder of crime prevention research center
1: Uh yeah i, I found it how did you how
0: did you come up with the idea to to create your own job basically <laughs>
1: i've been an academic most of my life i've had uh positions at places from the University of Chicago to the Wharton Business School to Yale Law School to Stanford uh to Rice uh, I went back and taught at UCLA briefly um, but uh you know basically I kind of ran into enough political correct type problems in academia uh when I was at University of Chicago Mayor Daly, uh basically threatened the school uh and so they moved me out when i was at yale had a couple u.s senators complain and uh wow left there and uh you're on the
0: radar of some very important people
1: i guess and so uh anyway uh kind of got tired of dealing with the politically correct battle over the years so
0: they're basically trying to censor you right to, to stifle or control your inquiry?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, with Mayor Daley, uh, what happened was uh, my book, More Guns, Less Crime, came out in May 1998. In November 1998, Daly called up Hugo Sunshine, who was the president of the U- University of Chicago, and spent 45 minutes or so going through all the wonderful things that the city wanted to do with the school. And then uh, at the end of the conversation said that lots presence continued presence at the university was going to do quote unquote irreparable harm to the relationship between the city and the school uh shortly not, after that sounds that, like
0: censorship
2: by a government
1: yeah well so anyway and i had something similar happen at yale with the senators
2: would, would that would um, you say that instance at chicago was that the first time you ran into maybe on that scale for sure but the first time you ran into something like that Or was it you were aware of it sooner? Uh,
1: I've run into similar types of things, not anywhere near as dramatic, but I've run into issues before.
0: Well, um,
1: before and after.
0: That's um, that's particularly egregious. Uh, I don't know what to say to that. I, I, I cannot I, believe that
1: answers your question. I cannot about... <laughs>
0: believe I mean I can you know the thing is is I can believe it actually. That it's um, it's exactly the opposite of what I said. I, I actually can believe it, and that's why I'm so upset about it right now. So you uh did you go immediately into fundraising for your new venture or how did you how were you able to cobble that together?
1: Well, um I mean That's that's
0: really vulnerable for a faculty member to be targeted like that
2: Yeah, for for, for free
0: inquiry, which is what you're supposed to be doing. That's your job. Why do you think that they I'm sorry, I'm asking you so many questions, but why, why do you think that they don't just respond to the substance of your argument? You make a substantive argument. It's published by the University of Chicago Press, More Guns, Less Crime, which is a very prestigious publication. That's a prestigious school. Why don't they why does it why well don't the book they just was respond by to the, the universe, argument?
1: Yeah. Right. Well, the book was published by the University of Chicago Press. Look, we have yeah. a lot of cancel culture that goes on right now. Um, uh, you know, I I'm,
0: why do why do you think that they don't just respond to the argument itself? I, I don't know, instead? you have
1: to ask them. All right, but it's
0: you have to have a theory but, about it. You have yeah. to have a theory.
1: Well, uh, you know, it's gone on for years. I used to have uh, um kind of uh published like four op eds or three op eds a year in the los angeles times and uh and then um uh, uh Gold, Nick Goldberg, who was the op ed editor uh in after two thousand um he would tell me that they would literally get thousands of emails and stuff complaining after they ran my pieces. Uh, Michael Bloomberg's, or I mean, uh, George Soros' group and others would get together and they would bombard uh, the newspaper there. And, uh, and Nick would say, you know, I got like, would get like 10 times more uh, emails and stuff for my pieces than anybody else. And he said say he didn't really mind too much until when they weren't getting a response from him, they would start going to the publisher. And then the publisher, when he would run my pieces, would call Nick in and make Nick have to talk to him for like an hour or a half hour or something. And he says, you know, I just don't have time to do that, John. So, and uh, and they've done that many other places uh, over the years. So it just, uh, uh, you know, it's something that's been going on for a long time. I don't know, yeah. when I... Uh, I had an op-ed in the New York Times in 2018, Hmm. and uh, I was being told by people that I know that 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 very morning, the piece came out, uh, Michael Bloomberg's gun control groups had organized um, uh, an email and phone call campaign. One of the editors told me that they'd gotten 75,000 emails within uh, 24 hours that were there. Uh, They were calling for the editor to be fired and what have you. If you go back, you'll see two days after my piece ran, uh, the op-ed editor at the New York Times felt it was necessary to write a 1,400-word email to the New York Times family explaining their policy for running op-ed pieces that uh, kind of went against the grain for the normal op-ed pieces that they'd be running at the times there. Uh, It was kind of, uh, you know, a couple years later, you had the op-ed editor fired for uh, running an op-ed by uh, Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. Yeah, And uh, uh, he almost got fired over my piece. So, uh, and when I, I was working in the department of justice uh, up in, during 2020 and the very beginning of 2021 and uh you know w- when it became public that i was working there there was a similar attempt to try to get me fired uh there um i was told that they probably had more demands and complaints uh asking that i be fired than anybody else that they had had there during the trump administration so you know it's something and it's not just me i Oh. During the 2016 election, I remember talking to academic friends of mine about signing a letter supporting Trump. And uh, a lot of them said, you know, there's like no way they could sign a letter like that uh, because it would just they would get, you know, incredible hassle at the universities that they were at.
2: Their jobs would be put in jeopardy. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you had... Uh, I mean, I think there were only five PhD economists who signed the letter supporting Trump in 2016. Uh, and only two of them were under age 60. So, um, Hmm. others were a couple of them were retired, uh, or at least like in their seventies or something. And, uh, you know, it really tells you something about, uh, academia. So I don't, you know, uh, I don't think I'm unique in terms of feeling those types of pressure.
0: What was your position at justice in 2020?
1: I was senior advisor for research and statistics, first of all, for the office of justice programs, and then for the office of legal policy.
0: Sounds like a, a important job. And, and even in, I mean, that, that's so odd because obviously the, the administration can hire who they want for those kind of jobs. It doesn't make well, any sense to try yeah. to target. Well, you
1: have you have the political appointees, and then you have uh, the civil service staff. Um, uh, a lot of the political appointees at Justice uh, were not Trump supporters. Um, what happened? Uh, Is that me? That might be me, well, actually. I, I, we went longer than I thought we were going to go. But, but hey, Travis. So that was someone that I've been trying to get a hold of. Okay. So I apologize for that. No problem.
0: We're back. Um, uh,
1: I'm going to have – this has gone a little bit longer than that, so I apologize. But if uh, – That's all right. Wrap it up. I'd appreciate it.
0: Sure. Well, do you have anything else you want to ask uh,
2: Curtis? No, these have been, these, this conversation has been wonderful. I mean, this is the stuff that we need to be getting out to our audience. Um, I think the only other question I would, I would ask is, um, is if Dr. Lott has anything that in particular that he thinks is pressing um, on the voter fraud or, or gun control. uh,
0: Already we will not be able to post this on YouTube because we had a, a piece where we had a a, prof- a producer of the film, the shack, which grossed a hundred million dollars on a $20 million budget. And uh, we had, he, he uh, mentioned EF those two words uh, twice in three hours. <laughs>
2: yeah. And,
0: and it was taken down and they said it was misinformation. He didn't even, spe- he did not specify the, the cycle He did not specify the the office or the year. And so, obviously, there's censorship that we're dealing with here. Well, Uh, you know, one thing you can do
1: is uh, one person that interviewed me uh, uh, for a podcast uh, said that it was taken down initially from uh, YouTube. But the stuff that I'm talking to you about in... uh, with regard to uh, Europe and developed countries around the world is actually in a forthcoming paper that I have in public choice, uh, which is an academic journal. And so you can go and point to that. And that's what he did. And when he did that, they put it back up.
2: That's a good suggestion. Thank you.
0: Okay. Well, they put it back up, but I had to, it's kind of a pain just to by what you were saying the stuff's going to be in public choice it's coming out okay right all right is there a way that uh we can point people to a way to support you well uh, uh you know our
1: website the crime prevention research center is at crime crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org
0: people can donate there
1: yeah
2: okay
0: well we appreciate right. your time dr lott Thank you. Well, I appreciate
1: your time, too. Thank you very much for having me on. It's great to meet you guys. So-